Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell, the podcast where an aging Gen X author and a self-hating millennial activist come together to thoroughly and conclusively solve our culture war problems with our combined wit, wisdom, and most importantly, lived experiences. I am the aging Gen X author, Megan Daum, and with me is the self-hating millennial, Sarah Hader. Morning, Sarah. Good morning. You Um, sound sick. I, I can't seem to get unsick, yeah, which is very unlike me. So I don't like it. It feels like an identity crisis. Well, you, it can be another identity if you want to add to your yeah. list of things that you are. I know. Do you think um, I could put on my on my Twitter bio that I got sick for the last few weeks? Maybe it might be worth it. Yeah, you could. You could. Maybe you have long COVID. Oh my maybe god! I actually don't even want to think about that. I really don't. <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't like being sick. I mean, I, that's nobody does. I'm sorry. But I do not have a, uh, it's just, yeah, I, I know ne- I was, I feel, you know, I feel like I jinxed myself cause I was going around saying, I never get sick. I never get sick. And then and now I you're really sick and you're going to be sick forever. Who knows? Forever. Well, you know, I liked being sick as a kid when my mom was there to take care of me. And now as an adult, <laughs> I hate it. Because your husband doesn't take care of you. Well, I, I mean, I still have to take care. But well, he can't. What can he do? You know, like yeah. make me, you know, he can't be just do the mom thing and be hovering around all the time and, and hugging you and like, you know, like rubbing your back, all that. He can't do that. No. Um, and he wouldn't. And it'd be weird. <clears throat> no. I have to say, this is how pathetic my life has become. I'm so overrun with work and have been like stressing out around the clock for the last several months that when I was really sick a few weeks ago, I w- it was the most relaxed I had been like all year <laughs> because I wasn't having that like super anxiety feeling because it had been paved over with sickness. And I just kind of lay around like one day I literally lay on the couch all day and binge watched this British comedy peep show, which I discovered. And it was so funny. And it was the most uh, take time I had taken off in like a year and it was weirdly relaxing um but now i have to but then i you know i recorded a podcast i I, we can't in this gig economy we just can't take sick days you know yeah yeah well and then being partially sick like this is terrible because you're you're not that sick that you you still have to go to work you still have to do your work it's good to be like so sick you can't move yeah, it's good to be relax. like in the in the yeah. ICU. Like the most relaxing thing is if you're in a medically induced coma, which which yeah, I, I have. Bring... <laughs> I've been in. I've look. I've been no, there. Have you really? really? Yes, I have. What what happened? Oh gosh, this is like oh, that's old, a whole story. Old but, stuff. Okay, yeah, very short. Is, um, yeah, but about ten years ago, I got this freak illness, and I, I've written about this. I got the. I thought it was the flu, course, and yeah. it went on and on. And yeah, of course, <laughs> there's nothing I haven't <laughs> written about. Um, but. Yeah, I ended up, um, I had murine typhus, which is, um, it's a vector-borne illness, and it comes from fleas. This is so, so disgusting. Yeah, no, and I, it was like a blood infection. It just, it was, (gasps) it ended up being this, yeah, and it went septic. It was this massive thing. I ended up having encephalitis, and I needed platelet transfer. Um, transfusions and no I almost died I was oh my very close to death and it was extremely stressful for everybody around me 
but by the time it got like really, really bad, I was unconscious. Um, so I I kind of just, my last memory was of being in the ER finally after going to the doctor twice and having them tell me I had the flu. Okay. By the way. So, Mm. um, and then I ended up in the hospital and, uh, yeah. And then I woke up like four days later and I had been in this coma anyway. Were you really relaxed? At that it was you woke up and felt great you know it's yeah i'm like one of those people you know you know how michael jackson had to get propofol <laughs> just to just to relax that's mm-hmm. it's, i i can't take a vacation so mm-hmm. i had to be put in a medically induced coma just to force myself to relax this is going to be the the final frontier of the of the highly productive person is that they won't stop working they have stuff like that on like sci-fi coma. shows they'll have like people just administering drugs to themselves to sleep to, yeah. to be able to sleep and and yeah I, I can't I can't wait for that for all that uh medicine to, to really to be to really be, be go mainstream <laughs> yeah like over the counter I want to get yeah, over over <laughs> over the counter paralytics yeah yeah um anyway mm-hmm. all right well that's that was fascinating stuff so we've got um we've got a couple of topics today mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, one of them involves this literary scandal of sorts that's been going on this week. I find it very interesting that you find this interesting. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like an insider view into a world that I'm not a part of, but I'm, you know, I'm always interested in like these little communities and what bubbles up and the specific rules that they have. But this specific community has, a lot of influence, whether or not they recognize that they have that influence. Um, I mean, and then, and, they and it just influences, I think, I think. No, but, that's yeah. true. That's true. But, but over the, you know, elite culture, I feel like they have a um, good deal of influence. And then, and then it's just, it's amazing to see kind of the same kind of dynamics take over one community after another, or just be like, already dominant yeah. and it turns out now now we now we can talk about it because it's so dominant that you can't ignore what's going on and you have a few people who are mouthy enough um to say something <clears throat> but this this i noticed on you know some people were talking about it on on twitter um uh alex perez who is a writer yeah um he was interviewed um, in this magazine called Hobart, which I've never heard of. Yeah, Sarah, get with the program. You've never heard what of Hobart, this? really? Is it really? No. <laughs> I've never heard of it. I've never. Hobart. Heard of it. This is the best thing to happen to Hobart. Uh, since, I mean, it's been around it's forever. Yeah. Well, yeah. apparently, it's been around since like two thousand one, maybe or two. Yeah. It's been around yeah. for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah, two thousand one. I feel like this is like the babe.net effect. Somebody needs yeah. to coin uh, a term for like you've been babe.netted because remember how nobody had heard of babe.net until the Aziz Ansari yeah. thing happened, yeah. Yeah. and it was only that whole it only that 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 accusation against him or that little treatise about the date it it, it was so unpublishable that nobody published it <laughs> except babe.net. <laughs> <laughs> and then it went viral and and made everybody infamous. Anyway, so what's happened here is that there's this literary journal, independent literary journal called Hobart. Um, uh, the it has a sort of 
rotating roster of editors, but the very top editor is this woman named Elizabeth Ellen, who I was not familiar with, but apparently she's a sort of fixture in the on the indie literary scene. She published an interview that she had done with a guy named Alex Perez. He's a Cuban-American writer who graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop in 2009, and he's not your typical MFA uh, writing student. He was like first generation you know, to go to college, working class, lower, lower class, working class upbringing, had been a serious baseball player, had aspirations of playing <laughs> professional baseball until he realized that he wasn't quite good enough mm-hmm. uh, and ended up going to the Iowa Writers Workshop. Now, do you, are you familiar with the Iowa no, Writers No, no, yeah. Okay. I was just going to ask. What, okay. <laughs> what is it? I mean, I've it's, heard of it. Yeah. I've heard of it, but I don't really. Don't it's, really it's so, it's the most prestigious graduate writing program in the country, which <laughs> probably sounds like an oxymoron right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's this world of, you can get a master of fine arts in creative writing. Yeah. So the Iowa Writers Workshop was founded in 1936, actually. And a lot of very famous sort of old school white guy writers have been associated with it. Uh, Frank Conroy is probably the most closely connected to it. They've had faculty like Kurt Vonnegut and John Cheever and Philip Roth. And um, it, it's it's poetry and fiction. And it's it's very, very competitive to get into. You don't have to pay. So uh, they'll give you a full ride. And I think essentially you don't even really have to go to class. <laughs> like you Like you go to workshop once a week and you can, you can go to other classes, but the main thing is you're just there to work on your novel or your stories or your poems or, or whatever it is. And, and the structure, so do you know what like a, a workshop is? Do you know how that works? Kind of. I mean, so, yeah, but, but the workshops I've been to are nothing like literary workshops. So yes. Um, well, explain. right. So everybody, <laughs> you know, say you're writing short stories, you hand your short story in, the class reads it that week, and then everybody shows up to the class. And often you as the writer are not allowed to say anything. They just go around the table and rip your story apart and tell you what's working and what's not. And the instructor uh, facilitates this discussion and uh and then you go back and write your story and it's it's just this whole sort of scene and i don't mean to i'm I'm being a little glib here but there's some really serious writing that's gone on and um you know certainly i as somebody who always wanted to be a quote-unquote creative writer uh programs like iowa loomed very large in my imagination and uh i i i do have an mfa there are many many mfa programs um, Iowa's really considered the best because it's prestigious and they give you a full ride. I went to Columbia for an MFA, which is like a whole other thing and I've complicated feelings about it. I've, I've also written about this. Um, they don't give you any money. It's quite expensive, but, um, it is strangely also very good and produces a lot of people who go on to get published. Uh, so th- there's, there's, there's MFA programs that are, I think are very worthy. Um, University of Arizona is another one. Uh, and you know, people do sort of come out of them better writers and are able to get published. Um, but then a lot of them over the last 10 or 20 years have crept up because sometimes they function as cash cows for the university, um, and, but really what's happened is there's just like this growing market of people who want to get MFAs 
And there are low residency programs where you work with an instructor remotely, and then everybody in the program gets together twice a year to, to take workshops and do readings and so on. So it's this whole world, and it's very, very, as you might imagine, white and elite and <clears throat> Um, it's not like a lot of first generation, <laughs> it's not like a lot of people from working class backgrounds go to these programs. Occasionally they do. And Alex Perez was one of them. And he gives this just excoriating interview in this journal called Hobart about, um, just not only, how how elite and out of touch a lot of people in the workshop are, but what's become of the literary world more generally. And he's touching on a lot of the stuff that we talk about here in terms of institutional capture, social justice ideology, permeating everything. Um, I will just read a couple of excerpts from his interview. Uh, he's talking about... Um, the way the publishing world works currently. He says 80% of agents, editors, publishers are white women from a certain background and sensibility. These woke ladies run the industry. And he says, and contrary to popular belief, I don't hate the Brooklyn ladies. On the contrary, I respect how these passive aggressive prude ladies took over an industry. Tip of the hat, Brooklyn ladies. He goes on. Everyone knows these ladies took over, of course. Everyone querying agents knows that knows this. Everyone dealing with the publicist knows this. If you follow one on Twitter, you follow them all. Every white girl from some liberal arts school wants the same kind of books. They say, I'm interested in BIPOC voices and marginalized communities and white men are evil and all brown people are lovely and beautiful and America is awful. And I voted for Hillary and shoved my head into a tote bag and cried, cried, cried when she lost. <laughs> so it's a pretty delectable interview. Yeah, it was entertaining. Um, and I certainly lapped it up. Um <clears throat> Uh, okay, but then what happened was this thing came out. It actually came out like at the end of September. And as these things do, it just kind of sat there unnoticed for a few weeks until suddenly it caught fire on Twitter. And some other editors at Hobart who apparently didn't know that this had been published, there's a weird um, structure there with the editorships where like somebody kind of has the reins at a certain time and the others are there's, there's kind of a rotating, the editors work on a rotating basis. So somehow it, there was a situation where a whole bunch of editors, by the way, I don't think they get paid. I mean, these are like unpaid positions, but they are editors at this magazine. This thing was posted on the website without their knowledge. And they felt so, they were so embarrassed by this because this guy's going on and on about how he writes in this very old school kind of um, Dennis Johnson, Raymond Carver, um, Barry Hannah kind of masculine way and this is not acceptable anymore and that as a brown person he's expected to only write about his marginalized um, BIPOC experience and if you're not uh, if you're not adhering to this you will not succeed in publishing um, so this was very very offensive and to the to a lot of the readers of Hobart which happened to be a lot of like very woke type MFAs so the editors then released a, um, a, 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 a note of resignation, which they put on the uh, site. And I will read from that. 
Okay, so they wrote, the content that started all this, this controversy, was regressive, harmful, and also just boring writing. The misogyny and white supremacy were treated with empathic engagement. And that sucked beyond measure. (laughs) (laughs) So they put this up on the site. Um, Elizabeth Ellen, because she holds the keys to the castle, took it down immediately. And so then this resignation letter resurfaced as a Google Doc. From there, it was widely mocked. Uh, I think on the blocked and reported subreddit, there was a whole discussion about this. Um, Elizabeth Ellen then posted a letter from the editor on the site uh, in which she talked about, you know, fostering art that, you know, where fear is not the basis of creation. So she's basically asserting herself as um, a more kind of heterodox type of person. So she's (laughs) she is uh, throwing down the gauntlet and saying, I'm not going to adhere to this this woke shit. Um, and then everybody went crazy online. And so it was really like your classic circular firing squad. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think uh, Alex Perez is the winner because nobody knew who he was. And now, now everybody's talking about him. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and yeah. it, my gosh, it's so, like, I mean, even the, the, the resignations, I just don't understand it. I just, I don't, what are they standing for? That they couldn't, they can't be sharing the same you know, website address right. as, you know, an interview published by somebody they disagree with. What is that? It's what causing is right? harm. It's causing, it's causing harm. harm to, of course, they always, it's all, it's causing harm to marginalized people. It's causing harm to, you know, yeah. the, it's, it's, there's more white supremacy in the world now. And the way that they're going to stop it is by posting this letter. Um, it just, it's, it, it's nonsense. And I don't, I don't understand. So it's the the people who resigned. I'm looking at the list, and this was the from earlier list. More people might have resigned at this point, but I don't know how many. Was, edi- I mean, how many editors does it take to uh, to run? Yeah. A, so a there's small literature. Kimberly, journal. Francis, Evan, Laura, and Michael. Um, oh, these are their I, first names. Yeah. These are their. I'm saying these first names because I'm I'm pointing to their. We don't want to get them it's, doxxed. I mean, yeah. Well, but also, what like. Who are these? Like, I don't know. It feels so passive aggressive to me to to do this, um, uh, and you know, and try and maintain this moral high ground. Like, we just we we just can't be around this, not this kind of talk. But I do, yeah. I want to discuss what he actually published because it was hilarious, and um, you know, I, I and I encourage everyone to read the full interview um, because it just it covers so many different topics, and he's such a um, you know, vibrant kind of a thinker and and covers a lot of topics that we've been touching on mm-hmm. on this podcast. Um, <clears throat> the piece about the white women, I think I, <laughs> I think that got a lot of people. Um, I think uh, the, the one that you quoted um, about 80 percent of editors yeah. or whatever. It's so is that do you, is that true? Yeah. According true. to what you know, it's true. But this is the thing. Uh, and I actually, I'm, I'm finishing up a big piece about this. Uh, I <laughs> will probably have dropped by the time people are listening to this. Yeah, it's all publishing has always been affluent white people in, in editor positions and agents, um, often women. But it's not because there's some grand conspiracy uh, among white, among wealthy white people. It's because those are the people who can afford to do those jobs. They don't pay mm-hmm. anything. Publishing mm-hmm. is uh, one of those 
quote unquote glamour professions, right? So mm-hmm. it means that it's kind of elite and it has the trappings of this very it's it's sort of high highbrow industry, but it doesn't it doesn't pay anything. You, yeah. you have to you have to it, in order to work in it, you have to be able to live on a salary that that a postal carrier in Cleveland might make, but you have to live in New York city and wear expensive clothes. So not only is it, is it white people doing it? It's women because women often have spouses that support them so they can do these jobs. It's not that they want to keep people of color out. It's that people of color are smart enough not to get into these jobs. I mean, smart enough, but also like they don't have the the capacity to, you don't have the, the, the wealth to make it happen. But I, I know two women in this industry. I'm not going to name, obviously not name, or exactly what they do. But yeah, they are um, married to extremely successful men, <laughs> like in a yeah, in, in finance, a field where they make a lot of money. Finance guys, or but like a lot of money. Yeah. Like they're extremely like wealth wealthy. Like have a lot of money. Um, and my my assumption was that this literary world is very much. Uh, because of who who's who who are the gatekeepers, um, it is necessarily something that is attuned very finely tuned to their tastes and their you know perceptions on what reality is and what you know correct politics are. What are the correct you know view points of view um, that that they should elevate? And it's interesting that he just basically explicitly says almost exactly this. Um, yeah. And, it, you know, and and he points to also um, this lack of masculine energy in the literary world. And I, you know, I, I when I think of writers and writing, I don't think of mas- I don't think of masculine people. I think <laughs> I think of women, um, you know, writing a lot of like <clears throat> personal stuff, but very thoughtful, compassionate stuff. And then I think of these um, sort of, you know ally kind of men you know male feminist kind right. of dudes the guys who are uh, trying to get in the pants of those women right yeah and and who, who kind of publish similar things um uh, and it, it, people are always writing within this this small like range of opinions um that they can access and uh it's interesting to hear from somebody who doesn't sound like them and and misses this masculine energy that he says once existed. Oh, it, yeah. So, okay. So what you're describing has really only emerged in the last uh, 20 years, maybe. Mm. Um, so, okay. So when you think of writers, literary writers, you don't think of like John Updike or John Cheever or. Are, yeah, they're like dead, right? I mean, they're. But they're the <laughs> classics. Philip sure. Moore. But uh, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, but, the, but when I think of like class, when I think of the social sciences, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the professors from, you know, who were publishing in 1940s or whatever, like there are some books out there that are incredible on, on the social sciences that would never, that would never be published today um and it and that's a different world it's an entirely different world and now i think of it very differently mm-hmm. um yeah uh, so uh, this piece was uh, so i mean i i read it and i immediately started <laughs> taking screenshots and texting them to a handful of friends of mine who i knew would just like eat it up the way I was and they were we were all just like oh my god oh my god like just, <laughs> I want to like wrap myself in this interview um 
But it gets at something that I have noticed, but I haven't, I had never quite unpacked, as they say in workshops, uh, which is that this world has changed significantly over the last 20 years. It's, it used to be, yes, it was very gate, gatekeeper, gatekeepy, and there was not a lot of diversity in the MFA program, but it was, it was harder to get in. It was taken more seriously. When I went there, I was, I was with really interesting people, like including mm. a lot of wealthy white men who were writing about like drug addicted, you know, despairing sort of, you know, borderline violent, uh, womanizing men. And th- these were short stories and they were, you know, sometimes terrible, but occasionally brilliant. And that was all part of the process. And I'm not saying that the program was only wealthy white people. It was, I mean, I, I was white, but not wealthy. And I've talked in, I've written in depth in depth about how I went into a lot of debt to go to this program because I had certain ideas about having to go to this particular place and live in New York city. And anyway, that's all I've, that's been well covered by me, but um, I, I just, I, I have noticed in the last several years that the, the MFA world is honestly some of the most mediocre people I've ever seen. And I was starting to have a real crisis about it because I, I would go, I would, I see these people online and they're listing, you know, MFA in their Twitter bio, along with their marginalized identity characteristics. It would be like disabled, <laughs> neurodivergent MFA, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that I'm part of this. Like, and I was, I would imagine going back to my younger self and being like, my God, you're, you are better than this. What are you doing? And it wasn't until he really crystallized how much things have changed and how he too entered this world because he was interested in sort of the same aesthetic or at least the same kind of discipline and imaginative process that I was in, mm-hmm. um, that I was able to say, okay, all right, I'm not, I'm not like the mediocre person that I've kind of reimagined myself to be. It's that something, something has shifted something significantly. Has yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a bunch of rich white people being there so long as they're actually creative and interesting and, and, uh, you know, they're, they're creating works that, you know, move people or get you to think it, it's in my mind, I guess, cause I've, I'm young enough that I've only ever known to the extent that I've ever known a, a, a literary world or just the world of writers. I always presumed it was different than, people who think interesting, interesting thoughts, you know, which is, and it's when, when I hear you speak about it, it's like you presume it's the same because for you for so long, it has been the same where to be a writer is also to be, uh, and creative and interesting thinker. But from my experience that those two are very different things, different roles, there are people who write very well and they write very beautifully and they write very beautifully constructed sentences and it's like poetry almost, but they don't have any interesting ideas behind them. And the people who have interesting ideas, they are nowhere near this kind of, you know, cre- uh. in, the, in the kind of creative industries in which they can foster their interesting thoughts into beautiful writing that also moves people. Instead, I see them in all these different, you know, various professions that, that really have nothing to do with with getting these getting their interesting thoughts out into the world in a form that people would also enjoy consuming um 
Are you talking about like thinker? What do you mean? Like, like sort of philosopher? Yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of like, I follow a lot of, I follow a lot of like, uh, almost like not amateur philosophers, because a lot of them are like, actually, you know, they they actually are academics, but in like some small town college kind of thing. Um, And they did, they just set up YouTube, you know, YouTubes, and they have, uh, uh, they're, they're, they record their interesting thoughts and, you know, these ideas that they, um, that, that, that's, you know, really looking at our world and trying to find some meaning in, in what's going on. And it's not beautiful, right? Like they're, the, the way that they're phrasing their thoughts, the way that they're putting it out there, it's not, it's not like an essay you might read, you know, from 20 years ago that makes you think, but also is just a pleasure to go through, right? Something Hitchens might've written that's just wonderful in every way. Like it's not like that. It's, it's almost as if those two aspects of it have just diverged entirely. Um, Mm. And I wonder what, you know, in the future, like what this has to do with how people will consume even uh, interesting thinking, I guess. Yeah. I mean, this is the crux of (laughs) what's difficult about my life now. It's so amazing that you you've never seen it's it's the idea that you can do both that you can write beautiful sentences and think in an original rigorous way like yeah, you've yeah, never I've, seen that combined. I just I hard. I mean, since like Hitchens, which who I always I always thought of him as a dinosaur, as somebody who no longer you know like like even like when I when I heard of him when I was reading him, it was my impression that he was on the outs. You know, people like him are no longer welcome. I could see that within the younger cohort that was coming up. And it was clear to me that that's not where the interesting thinking is going to happen anymore. It's going to happen somewhere else. And I mean, of course, though, like putting things into paper on onto paper and communicating them with others is a big part of thinking. (laughs) And so, you know, it it just damages everything everywhere that that we that we don't we don't combine these two things anymore. Um, But also that these interesting thinkers are not welcome in this space. You know, they're not there. Who's going to foster them? Which workshop is going to accept them and give them a full ride Right. Um, to to hone their craft, they're not gonna. It's not going to happen. Well, maybe the <laughs> University of Austin will start an MFA program. Yeah, the- <laughs> Actually, and then be and then be terribly mocked for it on Twitter by these same people who don't have an original thought in their. Maybe head. I could get a teaching job there. I mean, I used to teach at Columbia. It's, oh, yeah, I, mean, I and I uh, yeah, it, and then you'd be in Austin. Austin's great. Um, but it's, it's, it's high. now it's, it is. Yeah. Austin is. <laughs> I, so, but uh, I mean, cause when I was, it's just, it's like really fascinating to hear you say this because when I, I was in MFA program in the mid nineties and I don't remember ever censoring myself. I wasn't aware of anybody um, really worrying about offending anyone. There might've been stuff going on. I just wasn't aware of, but the idea, and I've said this before, the idea of being a writer was that you were pushing boundaries, that you were mm. provoking your reader, that you were offering surprising insights. And that's how you got published. That's how you got the attention of agents and editors. Like that was the job. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I always try to like, when did things start to change? And I feel like, you know, a couple things happened. The, the, there was the, the digital economy 
siphoned a lot of money out of legacy publishing. Then you had the rise of all these MFA programs and it just became a very cheap kind of degree, not literally cheap, but they're just that there are so many programs. There used to be, there, there are more, well over 200 programs now, uh, MFA programs. And in 1994, there were 64. Okay. <laughs> so you've got all these people getting MFAs and a lot of the reason they get them is so that they can then teach in MFA programs. <laughs> and I have known a lot of published authors, people who have multiple books who realize sort of in mid career that they can't make money writing books anymore and they have to teach, but they can't get teaching job unless they get an MFA. So they go back to an MFA program and get an MFA so that they can then teach it it. So it's really like Lee Stein, who's great, who's come on my podcast. She's talked about how she thinks MFAs are a pyramid scheme. Yeah, that's, I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that's what it sounds like. Yeah. And I think, you know, I want to be clear, like, I still think amazing things can come out of these programs and at their best, they can really be sort of magical experiences. But I think we have to be honest about, about what they are. And, and sadly, the literary world has just become this kind of um, social clique that right. likes to pass itself off as as a kind of, you know, the idea of being a literary citizen is this relatively new concept. And it, it really, uh, yeah, to be a good literary citizen. What does that mean? Well, That's nonsense. I, it That's... means that you are promoting, like, ostensibly, it means that you are, you support your fellow writers and you, um, you know, you, I guess you, you, you just, you know, you, you, you do good work and you elevate other people who do good work, I, I, I guess. But really what it means is that you have the right set of ideas and that if you are judging contests or editing journals or, you know, publishing books that you are looking for people with the right ideology. I mean, that sounds right. very cynical and reductive, but that's exactly what mm-hmm. Alex Perez is talking about here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I do think it's interesting because I, I do think that it's, it was absolute catnip for me to read this interview, but now having written a piece about it and having read the interview about 12 times, I, I am seeing places where I think he's, he's, he's over the top. And he, I, I mean, of course, but you have to, you, I think it, there's nothing wrong with being loud and wrong you know what i mean like in the sense that right. like that that's what the ideas world is supposed to be yeah um and it doesn't mean that he shouldn't be published it doesn't mean that there isn't some some grain of truth there that we should consider um and uh, yeah so i i want to just read part of what because just to piggyback on what you were saying with the literary citizen which is a hilarious um way of phrasing um conformity really um but he says uh, so she the the um elizabeth ellen who's uh, in, who was uh, conducting the interview asks him towards the end of the interview why does this literary world feel so bland so unexciting or maybe i'm referring to the mainstream literary world <clears throat> uh, it's a whole her questions are like extremely long i'm not going to read all of them um uh you left the literary world but did the literary world leave you lead you or leave you. Um, and he says the literary world is so bland because the ideological 
uniformity of this scene. As I've said throughout, most writers are seemingly aligned with progressive orthodoxy and wokeness. I say seemingly because a lot of writers reach out to me in private, like you did, who haven't brought, bought in, but are afraid to speak out publicly. So what you have are writers who are woke and others pretending to be woke yeah. out of fear. And the result is a scene that is totally flattened aesthetically. Isn't it weird that most writers sound like operatives for the Democratic Party? Do they want to be the press secretary for Joe Biden or do they want to be writers? Do do you have to have do you have to wear a pussy hat and pray to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and idolize little Dr. Fauci if you want to be a writer? Uh, I'm not saying writers need to be right wing, but it's strange that most writers present as Democrats. This restrictive culture that demands ideological uniformity creates a scene in which writers trade relevance and ambition for quote unquote literary community. Mm-hmm. If you are not a good little woke writer who dons the pussy hat, you won't be part of the literary community and lose out on the publishing your um, flash fiction about hating America. Flash fiction is flash. No, I, it just, I think it just means what? like fiction that you wrote in five minutes. Okay. That's what <laughs> it's, I like you just like, it's like, you just comes out of you in a flash <laughs> and then you publish it online. Yeah, uh, or or a webzine read by 15 pussy hat wearers. <laughs> What's wild is how writers have zero readership micromanage their careers, tweeting all the Democratic Party points. That is actually what's so strange because it's like there's there are all these woke little people and I don't understand the calculus that's going on in their heads. Um, and I, I maybe it what I what I hypothesize is that it just points to how powerful uh, social forces can be and social coercion can be that so many of these people have no they've no readership no followers you know and they're trying to make it into this world um, by being but but the only way to make it is to be you know extremely woke or have the right characteristics um, and on top of all that be very talented which is a very small amount of people that can make it um, and they say well, you don't all the have right to be talented Twitter. well you, you you're well, right about all yeah, of the yeah, above except the, except the talent part. part but they you know and and it's like you what what are you hoping happens here? You know, because yeah. you if you're if you're stifling yourself to the point that you're just this one dimensional person, you don't have any thoughts outside of this. You don't even acknowledge, um, you know, when other people can have an interesting point, even if you don't agree with it. It's of course you're not going to make it anywhere. No one's going to, you know, you might not be, uh, you might still be welcome at certain dinner parties. Um, and people might still be willing to hear from you and they might still be Facebook friends with you and all of all that that entails, but no one's going to be interested in your work, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, they're not even interested in it now. (laughs) (laughs) No. Uh, Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, is this like something that has been caused by, I hate to say it, social media? Like, what, what do you think, like, from your point of view, if I'm sitting here saying, well, it didn't used to be this way and um, innovative, uh, you know, le- less less uh, conformist writing used to be praised and valued. Um, and those were the people who were winning awards. What do you think changed? Like if, if you look, if I'm telling you what it used to be in the past and you're observing what it is in the present, what's your diagnosis? I think it has to do with, I mean, there are a lot of things, some of the things we've covered before, but um, something I wrote about uh, so many years ago now. Oh my gosh. I dislike looking at my old, you know, writings and whatever and seeing that date, published date and feeling um, so old. 
Yeah, well, but, try yeah, looking at sorry. your old published things and realizing <laughs> it's not even online. It's so oh, old, no. <laughs> it was only in print. <laughs> and there's some random PDF floating around, maybe. See, I've never, that's the other thing I've never, I've never seen, you know, like non- writing that that is only accessible in like a physical space it might it probably felt more exciting you know to have, oh my have God, a, there's a physical object um that's amazing and you probably you're, you're you're more i'm more reverent towards you know books that like physical books especially if they're like they're older books that i would have a hard time getting another copy of now i i'm like you know this is precious this is precious um, you know, it, it, oh, yeah. thought. I can't get it anywhere else, but like digital thought, it's sort of, eh, yeah, I'll find it again. <laughs> Someone will have it archived. Oh yeah. I remember the first time <laughs> I was published in Harper's magazine and it was like in the, it was probably like 1998. And I remember I had a cover line, like, you know, the name of my piece and my name was on the cover of the magazine, but my name was covered up by the address label. Oh, no. <laughs> and I thought this was the worst <laughs> thing that had ever happened to anybody ever. <laughs> the worst possible thing. Yeah, um, I'm so, sorry. <clears throat> yeah, you're lucky you didn't have to survive I, that yeah. era. Yeah, yeah. I uh, well, but I I do feel like you know digital writing just it feels different. It doesn't feel as no. I, I don't know. The precious. Okay, but tell um, me what you wrote. But okay, uh, yeah. So so th- I wrote this um, for free inquiry a couple years back. <clears throat> about how, you know, we, we were talking about social media and its effects and everybody knows, but there's this concept, um, spiral of silence. Have you heard about this? Not, no, Megan? not particularly. No. So there's, it's a, it's a theory, <clears throat> uh, that was, uh, first proposed, um, by, um, Elizabeth Noel Newman in 1993. And this, and according to this theory, our perceptions of, Public opinion influence our willingness to self-censor, of course. Um, and we're always monitoring our social landscape. And when we feel our opinion is contrary to that of the majority, we silence ourselves due to fear of social isolation. <clears throat> um, so that's like, of course, we know this. Um, the Pew Research Center, I wrote about this in my uh, piece. I'll link to it. The Pew Research Center tested the spiral silence theory on social media in 2014. I'm reading almost directly from my text. Um, <clears throat> focusing on the Snowden leaks about uh, the about the NSA surveillance program, mm-hmm. um, and they found that not only was the this effect present online, but they found that people were actually less willing to discuss the Snowden NSA story in social media than they were in person. So now we know this. This is like uh, common knowledge as well. <clears throat> now, um, in addition, one's level of Facebook use appeared to affect subjects' willingness to discuss the matter in person as well. So there's like the effect is actually like opposite. Like if you use Facebook a lot, you're actually not less likely to even discuss it in person. The average Facebook user was half as likely as other people to say they'd be willing to voice their opinion with friends at a restaurant. Um, And so there's this is sort of something we understand that there's this monitoring effect that's going on. Um, And I think that there's a lot about the way that our social landscape is legible on the internet and on social media that, and it's permanent that makes it um, extremely easy to, you know, monitor our, our space quickly, easily, effectively, accurately, and 
you know, quickly decide where we want to be there and what the correct opinion is. You know, it, before it was everyone was putting their opinions out publicly in an easy, accessible form. Um, at the same time, you know, you go log on Facebook, something's happened, something interesting has happened. Everyone's posting their opinions about it. They're sharing what they want to share. Um, and you're seeing all at once your entire social circle. Here's what they think. Um, and this is there's something about this that you know the the monitoring is happening in such a success in a, such an effective way that we self censor uh, more effectively as well mm. and more more you know more extensively also um, because there's so many people we used to not know everyone's opinion all the time immediately <laughs> how did you we know? ever live that way yeah and it would just come up in conversation and you might not even know, you might have not even known that your friends had an opinion about something that you found you know just awful and you can't even contemplate it. Uh, and you didn't you didn't know because not everyone was sharing everything all the time every second you know what I mean and so <laughs> it just didn't happen to come up yeah it did it it didn't come up right so we our relationships were just so much so much more varied what we knew about each other um, was limited and that allowed for us to even if we we wouldn't have if we had known better but you know that we didn't know better we didn't know everything yeah. that everyone all was these thinking. people so I was friends shoulders. with I had no idea their opinion on free trade <laughs> yeah. I, if I had only known <laughs> yeah yeah um so there's I think that 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 is the the efficacy of the monitoring has is the real um the culprit of what is going on and especially these people on Twitter because they're all just following each other and you and Always yeah. looking at checking Twitter all the time. What is everything? What is this? What is then the sharing? They're sharing privately tweets on DMs because this person said this. Blah, 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 blah. And it's insane. And it's happening constantly. They're constantly measuring the temperature of their community. Um, and it's so much easier to to uh, to to then be this perfect little conformist because you know what the perfect conformist line is. In the past, you would have accidentally not have been a conformist. You would have accidentally said something that actually your peer group didn't agree with, but you didn't know. You know, you weren't monitoring it well, so you didn't know. Mm, yeah. um, and you would have just blurted it. And maybe somebody else thought it too, and they agreed. And then there was a conversation. So there well, was... and it's not being recorded. You can yeah. you can kind of hash things out. You can yeah. try. You would sit around with your friends and drinks. I mean, that was the thing about MFA program too. A lot of the the good stuff happened when you went out for drinks after workshop and you sat yeah. around and shot the shit a little, yeah. little tipsy and, you know, tested out ideas and it was great. It was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in my piece, I, um, I read this book actually um, for the piece, but there was um, this book called delete the virtue of forgetting in an online age <clears throat> by this guy whose last name I cannot pronounce. So I won't. Um, but he, he, I'll try it. Okay. Victor, Sean, Sean, Ber I don't know. Okay. Something. We'll link to okay. it. Okay. We'll link to it. Sorry. I tried. Um, <clears throat> you're, that is, you've just microaggressed him. <laughs> He's white though. He's definitely like German or something. You so didn't it's even okay. bother. You're like, if you, you don't even, do this to... if you don't even try to pronounce the name, I guess that's like. <laughs> so he, he, the book was about basically just the value of forgetting um, you know, forgetting ourselves, even like forgetting what we thought like two years ago, because there's this this um, effect of consistency that we want to be consistent with ourselves with, you know, all the time. But naturally, if if we didn't have the ability to access our own thoughts from two years, three years, four years ago, we probably wouldn't be we wouldn't be consistent. We naturally shift. We don't even realize we're shifting. Um but the the way the permanence of the internet <laughs> and the way that it catalogs 
who we are and what we think uh, in this easily accessible format, it creates this sense, this uh, rigidity, um, even in people. <clears throat> and the permanence of it, it leaves not a lot of room for for mistakes. Um, so I said in my piece, like if if you say a tasteless joke, you say out loud, <laughs> it. In, at a restaurant, it might not linger in the memories of the people there for longer than a few minutes, or maybe they remember it the next day and go, "Ugh, Sarah's so gross. Why would she say that?" And then you, you know, and then you forget about it. But online, it can, you know, four years later, someone digs through it. Some little offense archaeologist goes back. They find it. They bring it, and they destroy your career with it. So yeah. there's, so yeah. now that, so yeah. it, it's not just that it's unfair. Of course, that's all unfair. But now we know it. We know that that could happen, which means that our present, everything that we're saying, we are thinking twice, three times, four times, you know, and, <clears throat> and of course, so I, you know, I said in my piece that sometimes this is, we, we, you can say that this is a good thing, you know, like perhaps my boss should think twice before, you know, making that joke about whatever, um, some racial group, um, but the effect, it doesn't target, you know, offensive people alone, um, because it, it, they're truly shameful, like Donald Trump, they are not hindered by this at all. But the rest of us are very much affected, especially the most cautious, the most sensitive people. Those are the people who are self-censoring constantly. Um, <clears throat> he says in this, uh, this uh, delete the virtue of forgetting book. Um, if we have to imagine how somebody years, perhaps decades into the future may interpret and weigh our words, we would uh, be even more careful in formulating them. And what does that mean? You know, it's, it's not just humor that's the, the casualty here. It's just this general conversational spontaneity, um, which means our evolution of our of our thought as, you know, as a community, as, you know, a country, as, you know, a people's just isn't happening and yeah. can't happen, can't move forward. Well, it can't happen through the old channels. No. So the question is like, so Alex Perez talks about now how now he's in the heterodox space and he's so happy that he doesn't have to be part of the literary community anymore. He's writing opinion pieces for places like Tablet and he says he's making a living that way, which I don't buy for a second. But yeah. that aside, do you think that it is possible to be an authentic expresser if you're out of the mainstream, like is, is That's the only all, the, all the Substack people, all the podcast people like us, like are, are, is what we're doing here sufficient? I don't think it's sufficient because there's no way to get out of this, these effects that are happening just because the online world, like you, you always land into another social environment, you know, and they're policing you differently perhaps, but they're probably still policing you. Um, you can just get it, it's it's a difference between better and worse um not of no longer being uh, you you just can't be touched by these effects we're all touched by these effects um and they affect how so one one thing that's interesting about this medium um podcasts <clears throat> and i'm finding it very interesting because i have said stuff on this podcast that if i said on in twitter i would get just dragged endlessly you know like because, what can you remember can you say it now everything everything we've said about what gender everything every single thing i think that we've said about I feel gender. like i would say everything i've said about sex. you wouldn't you, tweet, would say these you things? wouldn't tweet some of the things that we said here i would but then i would get dragged you know like i i, I would say them but I, I i would because it's so accessible like twitter is accessible and it's so easy to right. get your it's so easy to get your tweet to the hands of your enemies who are kind of hate watching <clears throat> that it 
you experience that backlash so swiftly, so, you know, intensely um, that it, it creates this, you can't help, but you're a little mouse and you know, you're, you're, you're yeah. being conditioned to not say but something. On, but on podcasts, well, this is why I don't publish transcripts of my podcast interviews yeah. on the unspeakable, yeah. for instance, yeah. because it, I think that's, you're just yeah. asking for trouble, but you know, what, if you, once we get big enough and we're as big as Joe Rogan, then people will go, then through. people will still do that. Because that's there true. are people who's, who's like have made a vocation for themselves of combing through Joe Rogan's interviews and oh, yeah. isolating things. These people things are and insane. Th- piling These on people. people do this. Yeah. They do this to Sam Harris too. I see that. I'm like, this is, mm-hmm. you are insane. If you're hate listening to this degree <laughs> for like, five I, hours, get help. <laughs> get help. Lex yeah. Fridman interview. Well, interview. <laughs> yeah. For just like that little clip that you're right. going to cut and then you're going to pay you are insane. Seriously. Like, I just, I don't even understand. Anytime I see people do this, even if they have a perfectly good point, <laughs> but if they do this all the time, this kind of thing, like list, hate listening, I judge the hell out of them. Um, but it, it, for now, while we're not that big, <laughs> we have this like moment, we have this freedom. But um, And then when we get big, people will go back to the archives, they'll listen to this and they'll use it to destroy us. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> So if you're, yeah, if you, you want to help us reach I mean, our it'll goal. Happen. <laughs> at at like, some point the, the boot will come and, and stomp on your face. But, don't, but, but do you feel like people like, okay, like somebody like Freddie DeBoer, for instance, he is saying a lot of this kind of stuff in writing on his absurd. <laughs> I mean, well, a lot of the writers back in the day were mentally ill or drunk. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where and, are those guys? Well, I mean, I, part of the frustration too with this, publishing economy is that there is this feeling that there's no adults in the room like all this yeah. silliness can be going on on twitter and it would be fine if you had the sense that the people running these publishing companies <laughs> or you know editors acquiring books were didn't care what was going on on twitter but the, 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 they're they the do. same people yeah. those yeah. are the same people <laughs> and i you know part of it i think maybe it's just like you know, that feeling of like, you re- you know, you get older. I mean, I, I'm sure I feel this more than you do. Like you realize you are the adult in the room and you feel like a child yourself because I yeah. think that most people, it's, it's very hard to sort of own your grown-upness. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, so there's no, you need, you need some people who are tolerant and understanding of what a craft is, like what, what writing is um and what it should tolerate because somebody like freddie right like he he says he says things he just says them openly um and you have to have like a a community that understands the value of what he's bringing to the table and tolerates you know the occasional like bursts um that are, are maybe not not super rational um and forgives him for it and recognizes that to be an artist you are, you know, sometimes you're a perfectly, you know, normal, you know, socially astute, perfectly polite, mannered individual. Sometimes you're a little crazy. Yeah, you know, but the, some the, of the crazy the stuff happens. he says is his most important work. I don't it think is, he's it is. I out like they're not no, forgiving no, him agree, for this I aberration. Agree. I was referring to like the thing that the the the, the bad thing that he did a couple a little while oh, ago that got oh, him kicked out. Yeah, um, okay. I'm not really. I don't yeah. know that whole story. I know it, but I don't want to go yeah. over it because it doesn't matter anymore. And he's made amends. So, yeah. Um, yeah so there, the, there's that. And then there's also, I mean, even what you were saying when you were reading this piece of Alex Perez, that there are some p- times where he just goes, you know, a little too far 
and you can understand the criticism, but that's, that's okay, right? Like it's okay to have, to go a little far and to be provocative. Um, And, you know, I don't know if we have the tolerance for that kind of personality, even in the thinking space, um, uh, who tons of people have talked about this before, about how neurodivergent people are like truly neurodivergent, not like people who put that on their Twitter bio and have self-diagnosed themselves. That wanna with, like, be with, neurodivergent I have, yeah. People. Well, people who are like, I'm, I'm, I'm Asperger's, you know, says my mom or whatever. Like, um, the the he, he points out like there there are a lot, so many people who've pointed out that um, somebody like Isaac Newton, you know, someone who was just genuinely, genuinely um, very strange person. Uh, Tesla was a very, very strange person. These are people who do, would not pass all the social tests no. you need to get to the academy and get access to all these resources that they would need to do their research. You know, there's, you, you, you wouldn't make it anymore. And there's no tolerance for that kind of thing anymore. There used to be like, okay, he, yes, he's in love with a pigeon, but that's okay because he's an imp. That was real, by the way. That. Tesla was in love with a pigeon. Yeah, has, yeah, I I feel like I need to know more about him. I just know these little. Oh my and drives. gosh, this yeah, the the pigeon stuff is actually it's incredible. Um, but <laughs> but he was just an interesting guy. He was you know, eccentric, you would have called it one of these. You know, but 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 n- now is there a space for somebody like that? Um, without them getting canceled because they say something out loud they're not supposed to say because they're not they're not as good as at monitoring the social climate, and you know I think we're losing something important because we're kicking these people out, these interesting, you know, vibrant, unique people. We're kicking them out of the intellectual space. That means there's no, there's going to be, you know, less intellectual um, ideas actually occurring in these spaces. Yeah. So you're talking about the people on the extreme end. So I feel like there's, there's people like Tesla and then there's people like the, the woke literary conformists and maybe there's the sort of heterodox space people in the middle. I sometimes think that people in the heterodox space are are all a little autistic. Like you really? maybe, you, well, maybe you have to be in order to just say really, to the extent that we do. Not you. I'm not saying you're autistic. I, I'm I saying mean, I, that, I, I think I would, I'm a little. I'm know. a little. I would agree with you. I think you there's something you have to. You have to not care that people are mad at you. See, this is yeah. my whole thing. Is I think that there are more men in this space because men on balance tend to care less about what other people think about them or get less upset when people are mad at them. So yeah. that's yeah. why you that's why you have this sort of unequal distribution. You know, just to kind of like circle back to where we started, I, I always felt that being a writer, doing something like going to an MFA program was a way to have my intellectual life align with my social life. And it, it did feel that way. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I loved being in an MFA program and I, I loved the people I met there. And I, I consider that the sort of, you know, even if I haven't seen them in years, I feel like it's kind of the locus of my yeah. kind of friend orientation. And, um, but, you know, I was really like, over the last couple of years, I've just been going back and asking myself, like, was were we just like faking it? Like, were we just like sitting through people's readings and like, yeah. just looking at your watch, w- waiting to go out for drinks afterward? Like, I, it's, I, I and, and I don't think so. Having now read this interview, it's, um, it's kind of like other people are thinking this. Given me permission to think, okay, no, it's there's something quite different now. All right, well, we'll move on to um, our second topic. <laughs> Now that we've gone over an hour, 
on the first one. Oh yeah, so we won't be able to do this for too long. But yeah, I don't want to linger on this one for too long anyway. It's depressing. Yeah, why are you so worried that uh, you think you think we've been getting complaints that we're too dark? <laughs> I've been getting complaints. That's um, racist. That it is racist. <laughs> and too dark, Sarah. It's. it's <laughs> um. Actually, you know, this summer, I feel like I haven't been out at all, and I'm looking a little ashy. Ashy? Yeah. Well. It's, uh, South Asian people get ashy when we, when we're not, like, when we don't get pale, you know what I mean? Like, we just get, oh. get kind of gray looking. Oh, I um, so I feel like I need that. to go tan and become, you Maybe. know, the golden sun goddess. Maybe you need to go to the- Canada. Where oh, people gosh. can go to oh. commit suicide, apparently. <laughs> this is our topic. <laughs> this is our second topic. That was not <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, that was our transition. Yeah. Everyone. Um, yep. <clears throat> get used to it. Uh okay, so this is uh this was from a common sense by Barry Weiss, um, common sense article. Barry Weiss um, did not write the article. Barry Weiss did not write this, Barry but Weiss's it's common, common sense, yeah. Barry Weiss's but... common sense. Um uh, it was a piece titled Scheduled to Die, The Rise of Canada's Assisted Suicide Program. It was published uh, a little while ago, um, four, four days ago. And I, you know, read it and just, I could not move on from it for so long. Uh, this happens to me now with ever, ever since I became a mother, every time I read anything involving Kids who are sad, who are depressed, who try to kill themselves, whatever. I just, I, I, I just fall into a funk and I can't break out of it. Um, can't tolerate that kind of thing anymore. I can't even yeah. watch shows where like a kid dies or something. Oh, I can't sure. watch. I can't. Yeah. I have to turn yeah. it off. That makes sense. Um, so yeah. So this piece, uh, it starts out with this incredible story of this woman <clears throat> named Margaret Marcilla. Uh, who is 46 and she finds out that her 23 year old son was depressed and he had, uh, you know, he had all these uh, health complications um, and he uh, had applied for assisted suicide uh, under this program called medical assistance in dying M A I D uh, in, in Canada and he had been approved and the, his death was scheduled, um, for, you know, it had a date on the calendar and she, she found it by, uh, by getting access to his email, um, through, through his sister. Um, and that's when he learned that he had applied and he had been approved and the date was coming up for his death. And it's just, you know, and then it's, the story follows this this mother trying to get this date canceled and to speak to this doctor. She try, she calls this doctor. She pretends to be someone else to try and get an idea of, like, what the process is of even getting approved yeah, for this Yeah, he's like, thing. the doctor's, like, meeting with people on Zoom this, yeah. to, to assess if they qualify for assisted suicide. Yeah, it's, I, I mean just out, outrageous you know and the, the the coldness of the whole procedure the email uh, they, they they show the, the the email that he sends out it's is hi h-i-i yeah 
know. I'm confirming the following timing. The Please arrive at yeah. this. Yeah, from the doctor. Please arrive at this time. I will ask the nurse at this time to start the procedure. It'll be completed in a few minutes after it starts. I mean, this everything about it is just so. It's so horrifying, um, uh, and uh, uh, so she she does what she can to to change the date in the end. Like happily, it seems like by the end of it. Uh, she's raised enough of a stink uh, that no doctor will take him on and approve it. That doctor uh, decided he wasn't going to deal with the hassle of this woman and the um, the, the sort of social media fury that she was um, <clears throat> able to activate. And now no other doctors are not taking her son on as well, which is, you know, in my, uh, the happiest ending you can get, I guess, in this scenario. Um, but it is... Uh, you know, the, the, he says, if you, the doctor says she, she calls a doctor in order to ask what this process is, she pretends to be an applicant. Right. Um, and she basically lists, you know, what is going on with her life, uh, pretending to be kind of her son, like repeating what her, uh, right. And she doesn't have a terminal illness to be clear. So there's no terminal illness. The the, the reason this policy, whatever you want to call it, was designed. It's designed for people who have like really painful, severe can- cancers and that's how it other things that are, to be, that are terminally yeah. ill. Yeah, That's how it was introduced. Yeah. That's how it was introduced. Uh, but increasingly, and the, the case of uh, this young man illustrates that it's just applying to people who are either in rough circumstances or very poor uh, or they're depressed and don't feel the need to, you know, it, it, ju- it is just a, an assisted suicide, not an assisted suicide because of a terminal illness, you know, and helping yeah. them end their life on their own terms that is going to end soon anyway. Um, but for people like this 23 year old who was, you know, he was depressed, he was a diabetic, he, one of his eyes was, uh, yeah, not working was and he was, you know, he yeah. was just, a, it was a sad guy, uh, and I know people like this in my family who, who have, you know, health problems and not a lot of other things going on for them. And they're a little depressed and they don't look that different from what I'm reading about, about this kid. Uh, you know, he's not up to college. He smokes a lot of weed. He, you know, lives with his family because he can't really aff- afford to live on his own. He's not unhappy. He's an unhappy guy. Um, and it just, it, this doctor says, you know, she, she asks, what do I need to do? You know, she repeats, pretends as if she's an applicant, tells the doctor she's diabetic and blind. It's a, there's a five minute, she shares this recording that she, she has with common sense. And the doctor just says, you know, if, if you wanted, I could do a formal assessment assessment with you. Um, she asks if she should come in. He said, we do them remotely often by video of some type, WhatsApp, zoom, FaceTime, something like that. And that, you know, and I mean, it's just so incredible that that's all it seems to take. Um, <clears throat> and it, uh, in the article, uh, they describe kind of this, the situation. So it's, this was um, it, in 2015, Canada's Supreme Court ruled that assisted suicide was constitutional. And then in the following years, the parliament starts passing these bills, including MAID, um, medical assistant and dying. Um, and then it, it began to be about people who could reasonably foresee that their death was inevitable could apply. Um, and, and somehow, 
it just it ballooned yeah, to this, it's to this place yeah <laughs> yeah um i mean they started taking the doctor started taking a liberal view according to this article a liberal view of when it comes to defining reasonably foreseeable death i mean even that language is so it's so messed up it's not right. you know it, it it is it leaves enough space for i'm actually so depressed that i'm going to kill myself mm-hmm. so my death is reasonably foreseeable because of how depressed i am in my living circumstances and so why doesn't the state help me in this regard um, and then last year, uh, according to the art- article, the government amends the original legislation stating that one could apply for MAID even if one's death was not for- reasonably foreseeable. <laughs> this second <sighs> track of applicants had simply had to show that they had a condition that was intolerable to them and could not be relieved under conditions that they consider acceptable. Uh, and this is the th- this is the language under which this 23-year-old um, diabetic yeah. um, Ugh, it, guy fell. It's just yeah. one of these things where it's so frustrating because definitions and language gets expanded. I mean, mm. I'm thinking it's like, <laughs> this is maybe a very crude comparison, but it's like amnesty has gotten expanded. Like amnesty yeah. with for fewer you know, immigrating, if you were crossing a border, amnesty used to, there were a very, very specific set of requirements that constituted amnesty. And now you can kind of just say, I feel like I'm in danger and you qualify. So not even in danger. I feel like I live in a way that's intolerable to me. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, with this, I, uh, I would like to know how many of these cases there are. I, I, I'm not. I, common sense has excellent fact checking, so I'm not in any way doubting this that this story is true. But um, I, I am a very big, actually, proponent of of medical of, of compassion. You know, medical aid in, in dying for people who um, are not only terminally ill, but for people who are you know really, really, really suffer. People who are like say quadriplegics or have just debilitating <coughs> debilitating um illness or conditions i think that i i think that we ha- we live in a culture and i think medicine has become something where keeping people alive at any cost is valued in a way that's not really thought through yeah. um and so i'm i really really <clears throat> think people should be able to control their deaths much more than they do. I mean, the the way the way that dying happens in this country um, is is absolutely inhumane. I think like we we treat our we treat animals better than we treat like yeah. dying cancer patients. So having said that, I that's part of the reason that this kind of story disturbs me so much because it's just an example of something that should that we really do need to have in place, but we can't have it in place because of things like this. Because the slippery slope, which yeah. is often referred to as a fallacy, but it is not actually a fallacy. Um, it, it does happen occasionally. In this case, it is happening. That is what happened. Um, and I, I hear what you're saying. I think I, I agree that when it, when it comes to terminal illnesses, especially very painful illnesses, I think, you know, I can understand the, the logic if I were a legislature, I would I I would say you know, death is imminent in six months, and not not by their own hand, but by biological you know processes, whatever the cancer is progressing, whatever is happening, <clears throat> and at that point you can apply for uh, 
for a state sponsored euthanasia, which is what, what this is. And that's it. That's the only condition. And of course there are a lot of other people like that. I think the quadriplegic stuff that gets into the gray category of, of a life that is intolerable, you know? And I, I think that is just too gray for us to touch the, there's a difference between we can, we can set a clear limit when it comes to terminal illnesses that it's harder for the slippery slope. It's harder for those liberal interpretations to include people who are just sad um, or can be helped. Uh, Quadriplegics, that sort of thing, that that puts us into a, a gray zone. And in this case, it's just expanding rapidly. There, were, there was another case that was covered in later in the same article of a of a, a mother and a daughter who have multiple illnesses, and they apply for uh, uh, MAID um, because they can't afford to live. They, they don't have any, you know, they yeah. don't have enough money. They're not receiving uh, enough dif- disability support from, from the provincial government. And they have, you know, nothing to pay for food. And so they, you know, they, they, according to the piece, they look at, a, they had take a, they had a hard look at their budget and, you know, the, the daughter says, mom, I don't think we can survive. We have to apply for MAID. I mean, but there's, there's something wrong here, but that something wrong is not, the answer cannot be something like this. I'm surprised actually that they are struggling so much to pay for food in Canada, which is supposed to be this, uh, you know, like beautiful, like, uh, uh, social safety. Yeah. uh, Yeah. That's why I wonder, I, I would like, I wonder what this reporter, like how much she, I, yeah. I, I'd like to know how many cases there are like this. Um, they I, have some numbers. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, of course, so as you said, like, I hope that they're, they're accurate, but they, they, I'm sure some of this is like in official tabulations, um, but they have noted that for, uh, that the numbers are rising. Uh, so the, the first full year in which MAID was administered, you had 2,838 people which op- who opted for assisted suicide, according to a government report. But by 2021, that figure had jumped to 10,064, um, accounting for more than 3% of all deaths in Canada that year. And it seems uh, that uh, it's an increasing amount of those people are in the 18 to 45-year-old category. So at first, only... 34 deaths uh, were in the 18 to 45 year old category. And in eight in 2018, that figure rose to 49, then 103, then uh, 118. And in 2021, 139. And that was without, that was before the change in the legislation, which now uh, has expanded the language a little bit to intolerable living. Mm -hmm. Um, So that number is, very much i mean it is going to rise that there's um it's easy to predict that that's the next step um and i i'm so torn up about it because i can can you imagine being this mother um yeah no i mean it, it's i i i don't know yeah it's no it's a, it's a really really grim story i was a little bit um it was talking about things like death cafes and death doulas I was a little bit wondering why I, I felt like they were being a little bit misrepresented. So mm-hmm. de- death cafes, that sounds crazy, but it is like this, you know, kind of meetup 
organization. Like you can go and have <clears throat> conversations with people like about just death and dying and what it means to you and kind of have these existential um, meetups. And I've actually been to a death cafe. I was doing oh, really? some, yeah, I was doing some research on this topic several years ago. And um, yeah, I went to one. It was really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody was suicidal. That wasn't what was going on at all. Yeah. Um, some, you know, some, some of us had had like people in our family die. I mean, I became interested in this yeah. after my mother died. My mother had this like brutal, brutal cancer death that I still I wish I could have hastened I mean I'm haunted by this but yeah um so you know that's I, I don't know but it's possible that death cafes have kind of morphed into little mini suicide clubs in some cases but I I'm not really sure that's true also the death doula phenomenon um that they were kind of making it sound like there was this new profession of death doula which had to do with like facilitating people's suicides that's not it at all that's death doulas are like again for people who are dying um and the family just feels like they need somebody to help guide them through it because you know the fact is i think people have this idea that even if you're in hospice care that somehow like there's this angelic hospice nurse that's with you 24 hours a day and that's not the case at all they just they leave you you know they show up a couple times a week at most and then you're on your own so um, I do think that there needs to be a lot more um, frankness about about death and dying so this but yeah I mean it, it could be that it's this this is a massively unintended consequence of of efforts to um to improve this particular corner of medicine there's so i i think you're probably so i i can see how they could morph but i also feel like this happens sort of all this happens a lot uh and it it's part of my like mild distrust towards something i'm reading even if it's you know and it is from they published somewhere where I trust the literal facts of it. It's so easy to uh, get onto a beat, you know, f- you know, five minutes ago, and mm-hmm. find out all these things, death doulas, death cafes, and right. and not have had the opportunity to really look into them and their history. Um, and then you 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 um, you know line up all these dots for an article and it's a very um you know it's a it, it hits you hard oh, this article because do. yeah of course yeah, it's, it's a, yeah. examples yeah 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 so only if you know personally like if only you know i wouldn't have even known that about the death doulas or death cafes and what you mentioned that it was there are these other things actually i i didn't hone in on that in any case but yeah yeah you should you should always read these things with a little bit of skepticism and not because there's intentionally someone is trying to mislead you but just that it is easy to be even as a reporter misled um having said that i can i'm really concerned about the you know the way we're approaching life and what it means to live i've noticed a lot of like in my generation i don't know if this is very common uh, if, if this is a generational shift or what but i I I don't know anybody who is categorically against assisted like suicide. Really? Even religious people? No, well, yeah, so only only the very 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 religious people, but even then. I mean, I I don't know that many religious people anymore that are not Muslim. Well, anybody who's <laughs> who's gone through it with a family member. I mean, yeah, I know even like devout, you know, serious evangelical Christians who have gone through this with a family member and are like, yeah, no, absolutely. 
mm-hmm. inhumane. With some things, I think I think we are shifting as a society on our approach to death in many ways that are healthy, um, but they have this potential for this slippery sto- slope that is not just bad; it's horrifying. Um, and we need to be thinking very seriously about what are the stops? What are, what is, where is the literal stop sign that says, no, you cannot go past here. And even if some people might meet the, you know, even if you might know personally one, one or two people who could, who don't fit into these requirements and could really use this truly and actually, uh, there needs to be a, there needs to be some place where we say no further. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, this, I don't, doesn't feel like this, uh, law, yeah, it uh, feels really very sensitive. wild westy. Like yeah. it just feel it almost feels like sorry to bring up the gender stuff. It feels a little bit analogous to that. It's like I don't think there should be legislate I don't think we should be for instance with the gender thing I'm not going to dwell on this, but I don't think we should be legislating what what kind of care is legal and what is not. And I I want to be clear because actually we were talking about John Stewart and the Arkansas t- Attorney General last time and I went on a big rant about that. But to be clear, I don't I don't agree with what her state is doing. Mm-hmm. Um and so with this, I guess I just find myself wishing that doctors would be have a more sort of ethical approach. Like we should be able to trust doctors to assess people and know what's appropriate. I it's, it's really bothersome that we have to kind of just trust some sort of arbitrary um, legislative body. You know, what's, you know, remember we were talking about Nora Vincent um, Mm -hmm. a while back and Mm -hmm. she appears to have gone to the Dignitas clinic in Switzerland for assisted suicide and it's not clear that she did not appear to have a terminal illness. She struggled apparently with depression. And I, I actually was poking into this a little bit because um, I, I, the Dignitas Clinic is one of the few places. It's it's very, my understanding is that you have to jump through a lot of hoops. It's very, very hard to qualify. Um, and I actually did an interview with somebody, Amy Bloom, who wrote a book about taking her husband to the Dignitas Clinic and we talked all about this. And so to hear that Nora Vincent, it really looks like she was able to go there just for depression and and get help and killing herself. I, I, that's just baffling to me. But it yeah. looks like that might have been the case. Yeah, I don't I I, I don't know. I I'm deeply disturbed by this and to me it's it there's there's so many risks when we're opening up anyone can do i mean even i I guess i disagree with you a little bit when it comes to the gender stuff in the sense that i don't know if uh, this everything is permissible i it is smart um and that that isn't to say that a legislative body is more intelligent than the various other people involved in making these kinds of decisions. Um, So I don't know exactly who should be making certain protocols. And especially this, my, 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 I've become a little bit more libertarian in the sense that I no longer trust institutions to tell me what's good for me um, or even to know what's good for me. And the gender stuff has been a big part of that black pill Mm-hmm. Um, where I now, especially pouring into like what the APA is, you know, recommending and all the, all the, all the recommendations yeah. from WPATH that they follow, like, you know, thoughtlessly really that 
really scare me. And then I think, how many times are they doing this? Are they doing this in in other aspects of care that are just less politicized? So I wouldn't be 100% aware of what's going on. Um, so there's, there's something about our institutions. Well, that, they're doing that, it with abortion. Are they? Well, I mean, legislating. Mean? Sorry. Oh. Are you talking about leg- like at the legislative level? Oh, right, 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 right. What they right. can do? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, but I don't know if that's so I don't know if that's not the that's the place or isn't the place of a legislative body. Like, I mean, aren't we a society that has a sense of what is right to do and what is wrong to do? Uh, I mean, we do make in the in the in the in in terms of abortion i mean the, the problem with that is that it touches on other aspects where we of, of the social world where in which we feel perfectly clear to make a distinction we say, you can't kill a person right and according to conservatives you're killing a person right then and there um and so lack of access to this care is it, it, not the point you know you don't you don't want this kind of you don't want the kind of care that can kill another person right, right. um so that, that's a little tricky um, from that perspective, I, I don't think that there there's no place for society to draw lines on uh, what we value and to have that reflected in other institutions. Having said that, that's my general thought. And I don't know in, in every specific case whether or not it's it's warranted or it makes sense. I just wish institutional bodies were more trustworthy. Yeah. And I wish doctors were better thinkers. Oh yeah, it seems not, like we just cannot trust doctors anymore. We can't trust them to to be to to assess somebody. We can't apparently we can't trust some trust them to know whether or not somebody qualifies for assisted suicide. I mean, it's crazy. I you know I think there's a story to be written. Like I want I want to like the Alex Perez. I want the the medical. Um, the medical student, medical community version of the Alex Perez MFA <laughs> expose. <laughs> because honestly, like I, I, these are like medical students. Uh, I'm and I'm hearing this more and more are some of like uh, some of the stupidest people <laughs> we have. I mean, yeah. it's incredible. <laughs> what is? I don't know what is that. Why is that happening? I, you know, I. This is like a subject for a whole other, maybe we should find a guest to come on and talk about this. I mean, I think that like, certainly people like me, I just blindly assumed that doctors were all really smart for, for like most of my life. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of people who are doctors have been like, uh, no, like these are people who follow rules. They know how to memorize things. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously there are some doctors that are. I mean, the best doctors tend to be also very smart. Yeah, um, I mean, that's and the like best ones. Yeah. people like infectious disease doctors, yeah. like that that kind of thing. But you know, by and large, you don't go to medical school because you want to sit around thinking in expansive ways. Right, right. I mean, it's sort of the the mechanic versus engineer distinction. You know, for, or get you in trouble. One, like, You're saying doctors are mechanics. Yeah. I, I, well, in the sense that they they know a car, right? They know the human body. They recognize the human body. They know the rules of how it functions, of what they've been taught through medical school, and they apply those rules. Um, and they're very good at that. Uh, but when circumstances cause, uh, have, uh, you know, warrant something else, a different kind of approach in which you might have to invent a solution um, to a new problem that is not easy to uh, you know, categorize in the ways that you have been taught. Uh, I think 
I don't know. I don't know how to feel about about where doctors end up. I mean, I I'm very um, you know ever since ever since I became a mother, I've been like pouring into like all the literature about child rearing, about every just read a mi- swallowed a million books about sleep training, feeding, all these like specific things, and you have. I mean, even. The, Every tiny minuscule thing is horribly divided ideologically. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And you have doctors saying all kinds of stuff. And then five years later, the recommendations change and they say the exact opposite stuff. And th- now it now doesn't mean it doesn't mean that th- they their their opinion is uh just as good as Google or just as good in my opinion. I don't think it is. It's just that I have this general uh I guess a lower level of trust, Um, not lower than my own thinking, you know, in many cases, my own understanding, I trust even less than I trust my doctor. But um, having said that, I don't think as highly of them anymore with a lot of specifics, a lot of specific things. Mm -hmm. Um, And and I I don't know if it's necessarily the fault of doctors or stupid people that are going into medical school or whatever. I think there's, there's a function of what's going on. There's so much to know uh, and so much we don't know and so much it's hard to measure. Yeah. And, I mean, uh, God, think of how much more a medical student has to know today than 50 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah. And then, but I, but I do think that there is the fault to the extent that extent that I can fault them for something. I mean, in the COVID pandemic, we're going all over the place in terms of topics, but in the pandemic, I, I, there were a lot of very bold claims being made by a lot of people with impressive credentials. And many of them turned out to be either not true or, you know, badly worded or stated or whatever, misleading for some reason. And we've had so many 180s in turn, in terms of how to approach this thing, what we understand about this thing. And all of that is fine, right? It's an active, it's an active situation we're learning new things that doesn't mean we shouldn't act on what we think we already know we should still have recommendations we should still have like protocols but there were some people who were who were like dogmatic about what they knew to be true quote unquote and and very accepting of very draconian measures um like social policies and measures um, to, to force people to do certain things when we all know that we have incomplete knowledge here, you know? So that's where I, I get into this strange space of, of not knowing what to think. Um, and there was, there was a piece on, uh, on, on gender a little while back again, back to gender. Dang it. Sorry. But we should take a shot every time we talk about gender. Yeah. So just to connect this to, uh, to back to, back to gender again. Um, but of course, couple of days ago a week or two ago i saw um this this you know uh, piece that was being shared by people on twitter about how gavin newsom has signed uh, a bill to allow minors from other states to receive medical gender care gender affirming care without parental consent in the state of california and so the, what it means like the language is there's just these little little shifts in the language but what it would allow is for people who uh, for for out-of-state minors, if they were brought into the state um, by themselves, the bill states that uh, the, the, the state, the court has temporary emergency jurisdiction if the child has been abandoned or it is necessary for an emergency to protect the child because a child, I'm reading directly, mm-hmm. because a child or a sibling or a parent of the child is subjected to or threatened with mistreatment or abuse 
or because the child has been unable to obtain gender affirming health care or gender affirming right. mental health care. And that's it's that last bit that's so sneaky. So, it, you know, it's, yeah, they just it, in, it in. in. Yeah. In, in Texas, they can't Florida, whatever. They can't get gender affirming health care or they just have parents who say, no, we're not going to give you access to this. Right. And they're in a state where they are allowed to say no. California is saying that, no, you have we will give these people care if they well, can and find California a way. California is just reacting to these other states for for political gain. It's it's yeah, it's yeah. so maddening. I yeah. This is the thing. Like everybody is dumb about this. This is what drives me crazy. You know, I have to give a little plug to um, Sarah Heppola on the most recent episode of Smoke Them If You Got Them podcast with with Nancy Rommelman <laughs> went on an amazing. Uh, she 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 expounded at some length about this very issue and about how she she really doesn't know what to think and and about how she, the fact that she lives in Texas gives her a very particular point of view about how some kids really are in danger of being taken away from their parents if their parents explore gender transition at all. So we've got these two extremes. Anyway, I just did a pretty bad job of paraphrasing her, but I would really encourage people to to listen to that episode because um, I tend to be very strident about this. And I think she says, she expresses this in an, a, a very, very nuanced way. So let me just give a, give a plug for that. But yeah, no, this is, it's like everybody's doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but, but it's a case in which, the, the, I think the medical establishment is is in the wrong on the on the whole when when it comes to ch- children's medical transitions like medical interventions, yeah. um, they're wrong. And if we start defining and we're going to see it happen um, in the coming <clears throat> years and decades, where certain states are going to say you must uh, provide gender affirming care to a child that's been diagnosed. Um, or you will have you will be charged with neglect, or you will have your child taken away. Yeah, no, it's we're already seeing it in the, we're seeing in the that. foster was... care system in California. If the kid is, um, you know, ward of the county, if they're in the in the system and they want to transition, they they have to be transitioned. The social worker has to uh, affirm. Is my understanding that right? My, uh, everyone that everyone has to affirm all the time. But there was yeah. a there was a Virginia. Uh, bill that's it's 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 just a bill um but there is a virginia delegate who has been wanting to pass a bill uh that uh would expand the uh the uh, definition of neglect <laughs> of child neglect yeah i know i saw i think that got tossed gen- out already but yeah I did yeah that. but but just the fact that there there are people who want to do this it makes me very nervous about uh, yeah, institutions, what we were discussing on earlier and what happens when they're wrong? You know, what happens when, when, when the, the, all the smart people who are supposed to know what's going on better than everybody else is captured, um, in one form or another, uh, and where does that leave the rest of us? So I think we've gone on long enough, but it's time for, it's time for the bonus. You can do some lighthearted stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Something fun. Yeah. Something (laughs) absolutely all right well thank you everybody for listening please rate and review the podcast um do you have anything to plug it doesn't matter i'm going to be in conversation with michael Shermer on october 29th at the chicago humanities festival if anybody's still listening yeah (laughs) and i don't know we might talk about gender no yeah no no one (laughs) listens like you can just see it in like the the analytics people are dropping off yeah i have a i have have a conference in october on october 22nd i left a link to that in the last notes i might like link to it again 
Um, it'll be just a few days after this podcast comes out, but I think there are some tickets available, so you can yeah. you can come join us awesome. in DC if you want great. to. Yeah. Um, oh, and everybody, I wrote about the Alex Perez Hobart thing on my Substack, megandaum.substack.com. So please um, read that if you didn't get enough of our conversation about it. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right. See you in hell. See you in hell. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. (laughs) 